The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom, now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks! Are you recently back from hell after five years and looking for the latest and greatest in 90s comic book entertainment? Then have we got the show for you. Yes, welcome to Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The bi-weekly program where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Currently brooding in an alleyway with a cape that's big enough to cover a 747, I'm Adam. And trying to program my Apple Watch to display the current tally of my Hellspawn power meter, I'm Michael. And joining us for this episode is a guy who knows his way around the wrestling ring and a comic book page. If he were to challenge the Violator to a wrestling match, the stipulation would definitely be Hell in a Cell. From the House Show podcast here on the Retro Network and all around nice guy, it's Kevin Decent. Welcome, welcome. Thank you, thank you. That's right. Wrestling comics, if it involves men in tights, then you call me. Wait, that <laughs> not come out right. But are you one of the men in tights? Would Mel Brooks have hired you for that production? Uh, apparently, as long as I can actually speak in an English accent, he would have. <laughs> touche, touche. So here is the question, Kevin. Speaking of wrestling, speaking of comics, you know, it seems like that is a fandom, two worlds that often collide. There is a lot of bleed over between the two. So the question becomes, why do you think that is? What is it about wrestling, professional wrestling at least, and comic books that appeal to the same demographic? I would say, and this this became part of uh, my own blogging outside of the retro network and trying to have topics that cross over, which they do. I'm going to say, and get your shoes on, guys, because we're going to take a walk. It is control and monsters. Mm. Follow me here. A child desperately wants control things. A child has no control over their lives. Parents, teachers, grandparents, older siblings, whoever. Someone is always telling that child what to do. And... A guy named Forrest Ackerman made a lot of money exploiting this because kids will gravitate to monsters. My kid alone, last year, we did Jurassic Park and Rampage and Monster Squad. I got that one in there, thankfully. You know, kids go to dinosaurs first because they see something giant that no one can control, that can step over anything, do anything, and they gravitate towards it. Ooh, I want that. So you see superheroes. You see wrestling most of which has monsters. There's a reason why Stan and Jack started with the Hulk and the Thing and a Spider-Man. What is this? There's a reason why you put out Andre the Giant and the Undertaker or Bray Wyatt slash The Fiend. Now you put a monster out there. You put something that kids are drawn to and it's safe, scary. But they also see themselves in it. And, ooh, wouldn't it be amazing if I could throw everything around? If I was strong and big and powerful, that'd be awesome. Then you get into those worlds. And as you get older and mature and find more to it, ooh, this is athletic. Ooh, this is well-written. This is well-drawn. Oh, my gosh, there's a story here. There's something deeper. And as you get older, you keep finding stuff to it. There's a reason why Rowdy Roddy Piper was the bad guy that you hated so much and you root for Hulk Hogan. And then as you get older, you're like, wow, he was cool. That's amazing. I still want to watch him, but for a different reason now. And I think some people go on and, you know, they're more athletically gifted than I and, and many of us, 
or they decide to grow up, quote, and leave these things behind. But for a very big population of us, I'm not ever going to grow up. I want this stuff all my life. There's nothing wrong or immature about either if I don't want there to be. And if I want to just be a kid with it, then I got that too. Wow. See, there is the dissertation, folks. There is his thesis, wrestling, <laughs> comics, control, and monsters. I'm sure you passed That's and deep. got your doctorate <laughs> in wrestling studies. <laughs> Ooh, would that be a doctor of thugonomics? There you go. <laughs> you can't see me. Anyway, when there's plenty of wrestling to be discussed on your podcast, The House Show. For those who haven't had a chance to check it out yet, why don't you give them a brief explanation of what it is you guys are doing over there on that program? So very briefly, this is myself and two of my longtime best friends. This goes back to high school and we're, well, treats not quite yet, but the other two of us are in our 40s. So we've been friends 20 plus years and we love wrestling. We'd always get together for the pay-per-views. We've gone to every small podunk town in New York to see like indie wrestling just because one person cool was going to be there. You know, we've gone all, all over the place. All three of us currently aren't working right now either <laughs> because of the state of the world right now. So we're looking our our texts that got longer, our phone calls got longer and we're like we just have to do something. We need a creative outlet for all this. And we came up with starting with the in your house series which was a 90s pay-per-view series it started as a two hour instead of three hour and a cheaper pay-per-view to just get a monthly pay-per-view out there when it's not a wrestlemania or a royal rumble or one of the big ones so we're going through an order watching it on the wwe network and it's amazing we're seeing stuff we didn't see before we're appreciating talent we didn't appreciate before we're seeing mistakes that think geez if, if we knew then what we know now i don't think they would have done that and like as we go along, wise you mean like for, to avoid injury or stuff like that or no like there, there was one match it was a tag match and the worst wrestler in the match coincidentally becomes a champion a year later the world champion Hmm. And he's by far the worst one in the match. But during the steroid investigation, a six foot ten guy is six foot ten naturally without steroids. So even if everyone else goes off steroids, he's still six ten and looks like to go back a monster. So that's the guy you want to push. Doesn't matter. He's not good in the ring. So we see things like that. Plus, we've been friends so long. We pick on each other. We make jokes. We make inside wrestling jokes, inside jokes to ourselves. I will say, so the, 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 for those who have not had a chance to listen yet, because anybody can talk about wrestling. Anybody can act like they know the ins and outs of the business. But what is so fun is when you have friends that have done this together off the mic for years and years, it is so natural. It is so fun what they do together. And yes, Maddie treats as I understand is doing a lot of the editing and his editing work to emphasize when they go off on a tangent or when kevin makes a joke it's just great so i i can't recommend it enough that you go check this out just for fun and for those who of you who are wrestling fans about say well i already listened to a lot of wrestling podcasts or whatever this one does have its own flavor I have a, a wrestling story. I was a big wrestling fan in the 80s and 90s, and, you know, especially in the 90s with Stone Cold and Mick Foley and so on and so forth. So Mick Foley lives about 10 minutes from where I live. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I used to work at a college about, hmm, this is going back almost a decade ago now. I was an admissions counselor, and he comes in there one day with his son to do a campus tour. And guess who did the campus tour for Mick Foley and his son? Whoa! Me. Yeah, I spent like about an hour with them walking around campus. And then 
Here's where it gets even weirder. I also worked part-time at Apple, and about a month later, he comes into the store to buy his son a computer, and guess who sold his son a computer? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you are in the Foley inner circle. You're their go-to guy. (laughs) I am. And and my uh, my local comic book shop, Fourth World Comics, just had him there right, right before... Everything happened in the world for uh, this huge signing that he came, he did for some something that he's working on. I don't know if it was a book or whatnot. I couldn't make it because I had something going on that day. But he he does signings all over the place around here all the time, and you see him around here and there. It's it's strange, but it's cool. Like I usually oh, see okay. him in shorts and just like a ratty old t-shirt. Like <laughs> like this guy's rich. Like he's rich. <laughs> like he didn't stay rich by living the Ric Flair lifestyle, I'll tell you that much. That's awesome, Michael. See, everybody's got a wrestling connection, but it seems like a majority of people have a comic book connection as well. And while it would probably take hours and hours, I know, Kevin, to get into your wrestling origin story, we want to hear about your comic book origin story. picture upstate new york 1987 my family was doing a trip to orlando we're not like you know disney every year people we're disney like every generation people i'll say <laughs> um, my family too same way <laughs> yeah so this is 87 so i would have been nine years old and we're out shopping mom's like well bring something to read on the flight so three hour flight could be longer I'm like all right can i get anything you want? can you get anything you want and for some reason the comic rack was right there and stuff just looked cool on it. So I grabbed a spectacular Spider-Man with uh, Electro on the cover, and it was part of uh, this longer Sin Eater storyline, I believe. I was like, all right, cool, get it. Is that all you want? That's all I want. It was 75 cents, I think, when I started. So I take on the flight. First flight I've ever been on, too. You know, you taxi for the flight. I had finished the comic before we even took off <laughs> for a three-hour flight. So I was like, well, what else am I doing? So I read it again. All right, well, let me look into other things so now i'm reading stan soapbox and bulletin bullpens and the letters page and the 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 indica of like here's how many copies we sell every year that we need to you know file once a year and all that stuff i'm reading all the ads i'm looking through and i'm like studying it absorbing it so next time i was at that same wall book i go oh there's two comics that i just saw ads for let me get those oh those were cool is there any more oh those were cool too and i just kept getting more and more and the problem was three four trips in my mom leaves a different way and we're driving by i'm like why is there a poster of these same comic books i'm reading in that store window oh that's a comic store that's a comic store i didn't know existed that's where i'm going tomorrow (laughs) and i hung out there for years i would skip lunch at school and take my money and go buy more comics in the summer i would just hang out for hours like on wednesday i'd just wait till the delivery showed up so i could see it first for all the new comics quick side story for you and then not land i have heard garib Seamus, founder of wizard on the phone oh there really? was a guy yes there was a guy working at the comic shop that was inspired by wizard and wanted to start his own magazine and he thought to make it different he would cover comics and heavy metal much like our discussion of comics and wrestling he thought comics and metal had a lot of crossover audience which i would agree with so he was 
calling up people, would you do an interview? Would you be willing to do that? Do you have any suggestions for me? Do you have any pros and cons? Any, like just all the advice and doing interviews and writing everything down and do, doing all this stuff. Really want to start a magazine. So Gareth Seamus has given him all sorts of information, what worked for him, what didn't, who they went to. You know, just helping him out. I heard Todd McFarlane on the phone. I heard Eric Larson. I heard Jim Lee. I heard Jim Shooter. This guy had connections. Wow. Problem is, he's making all the phone calls from the store. (laughs) He was not the one that owned the store. He was just the one working there. So with a very expensive phone bill later, he disappears, and that magazine never happened. Oh, that is rough. And that's amazing that Gareth Sheamus is just like, yeah, become my competition. I am not concerned. Yeah, (laughs) go ahead. Do your metal and comics. I mean, at this point, I don't think they had a competition. So this is interesting to me because I was never the comics buyer of a store that hung around and got into deep conversations. It was never the scene for me. I was always an in and out kind of guy. Like, I want to be shopping, but I'm not there to socialize. I just I want to find something unique in the back issue bins grab a couple of books off the new release rack and then i'm done so what was the appeal to you to stick around so for me maybe it's because i love comics maybe it's because i was more smart than athletic maybe i was socially awkward who knows but for some reason i had a very small group of friends at school and we all lived so far apart pre-internet pre-cell phones pre-all you know having our own cars or anything we couldn't really hang out So if I want to do something after school or in the summer other than just sit at home, the comic shop became Mecca. I wasn't talked down to. I wasn't insulted. I was treated as an equal. I was under a learning tree there. I had fun. And looking back, if my kid as a a young teenager is like, I'm going to go hang out with a bunch of 40-year-old dudes all day, I might have an issue with that. That's that's not how my mom viewed it. It was just, I'm going here, I'm enjoying reading these things. I, I would draw my own comics at home, I would sort them, I would look stuff up, it would take me into other tangents of research, and, you know, hey mom, where's our encyclopedias? Because I'm not understanding what this is referencing, and I need to know what it is so I can enjoy the rest of the story. Stuff like that. So she never saw comics as a bad thing for me so she allowed this and the more she allowed it of course the more i'm gonna do it (laughs) i think i i think i did it until i went to college so you're you're hitting on a really interesting point here and it's something that both adam and i as well as our other guests have all kind of said in in parallel is for a lot of us going to a comic book store whether we were there just to get some books or start up conversations or just listen to people talk about stuff comics were very much or like the comic book shop in general was like a safe space for people you know you can go there and you can just feel like wow okay I can find something that I like here. And I think that's an important thing that people forget about is having that safe space to go to back then, you know? Yeah, and there it took me a while to find that again. I loved my hometown one until people come and go and it just didn't feel the same again. I always call it like your your Empire Records thing. (laughs) These people have to all be here at the same time for this to work and feel like a family. Mm. And as soon as people start going away, it doesn't have that feel anymore. So everyone kind of leaves. Here's my question about this, Kevin. So then as you're mingling with these people, were they making recommendations? Like what were you picking up? I stopped going to one store, which was short-lived anyways, but it was like, you know, once another shop pops up, you have to at least look. See, <laughs> I stopped going because they said, oh, it's that Avengers kid. Because oh. I didn't read X-Men at the time, I was ostracized. <laughs> ostracized of the ostracized. 
you know, like how do how do you go into a comic shop and make someone feel unwelcome? All of us are unwelcome. We're into comics. I've gone to college. I've lived different places. Um, I had a girlfriend that lived on the West Coast years ago. So I've been to many comic shops and a lot of them you walk in and I'm like, it's just so sterile. It doesn't feel fun. It feels like someone got into it thinking they can make some money. Now they're stuck with it, but there's no passion to it. The one that I go to now, it's about a half hour drive from me. There's two in the next city over, but one is absolutely like, oh, we got Funko Pops and we got all this other stuff that we can mark up the prices on. Who wants this? And another one is like, dude, I have boxes of 1980s comics just sitting here. What are you looking for? In my spare time, I'll find it for you. And then we can talk about it. Mm-hmm. The one when I was a kid, I would go in and I'm like, hey, you want to buy this? And it would be, you know, like me buying all five covers of the same comic. Because, of course, I got involved in that world, too. <laughs> and and one of the guys there would be like, no, you don't. I'm like, no, I do. He's like, no, no, you don't. I'm like, no, I have the money for it. I want to buy it all. He's like, no, tell you what, I'm going to let you take those for free. You know, quote, you'll pay later, but it never happened. Huh. Or I'll set it aside for you. You need to read this. And next week when you come back in here, we're going to talk about it. So this is him giving me Robert Crumb, Watchmen, Frank Miller, like all the quote, the good stuff. Uh-huh. And he'd be like, you don't need to buy five covers of Robin because it's a different hologram on each cover. It's the same <laughs> comic inside. You do not need to buy all of these. No, I want to buy the new McFarlane toys toy, you know, just to jump ahead here a little bit. He's like, no, you're not spending 10 bucks on a toy. Take the toy, pay for it later buy this instead and he would just hand me the good stuff where is this shop who is this guy <laughs> but come into my store place. young man i'll give you some free comics keep coming back every week well i mean you know looking back i'm like geez it's so weird that these guys work in a comic shop and apparently they're not making any money because they're rolling their cigarettes right here <laughs> i don't understand i was that naive so looking back i'm like oh i hung out with a bunch of freewheeling guys there they're just like ah what's money what's this we're here to educate you and this is the same guy that's like what are you listening to oh i'm listening to you know whatever was on mtv at the time he's like no 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 no. here and now he's handing me like neil young you know i, I wasn't even familiar enough with the beatles yet he's handing me that send me grateful dad he's handing me like all this amazing music too this is what every nerdy kid dreams of right it's like yes and- Cool older guy going to educate me on everything that's awesome, supposedly. And then it's like, oh, it turns out it's actually good. And, and nothing about this was creepy in the wrong. There's no, like, dark story, history, anything. This was just legit, like, I was seen as the little brother of the store. That is awesome. But, you know, it is interesting. We have the Avengers kid with us right now tonight. And I think it's time that we open up Willie Lumpkin's Mailbag. So this time around in the letters page, magic words, another log is being added to the fire of the ongoing Iron Man versus X-Men debate. Now, originally it started out as Avengers versus X-Men, and then suddenly Iron Man can destroy all the mutants. It's white hot at the beginning here. This isn't something that built slowly. So why don't you take it away, Michael? Dear Wizard, I'm writing to congratulate you on Wizard number eight. The cover was the best. Now, just Jim Lee and my life will be complete. On a ser- onto serious stuff. To that guy who insulted the X-Men by writing about that award-winning, hot-selling, super-hot pick, 
never an issue left on the shelf, Iron Man, kiss my mutant loving butt. Anyone who <laughs> insults a mag like the X-Men is not a real comic collector. Wow, this is... All right, he got he got he. It started off so lovely. It's like, oh, I just need Jim Lee now. That mutant hated guy. It's like, oh. <laughs> I mean, this is this kid is a mark for sure to use the wrestling term. And now Wizard's about to get some heat. So, ooh, for this letter, I'm handing the letters page back to Doug. Quote: The guy who insulted the X Men, Goldstein, for a second. Look here, Nate. What I said was Iron Man could defeat the X-Men single-handedly. This is true. I don't dislike the X-Men, and I wasn't insulting them. I was just pointing out that there's someone out there that is a lot more powerful than all of them put together. And for your information, Iron Man was popular decades before you little mutant-worshipping maggots ever heard of the X-Men. People have forgotten what it means to be a cool character because some other books have flashy art and half-naked women in them. So you and your butt could just chill, okay? <laughs> If this was Twitter, this would be fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) It would go on for days, weeks, years. Yes, this is just a little bit slower. But uh, there's, there's actually one more in here that is, for a smaller group of comics fans out there, equally as incendiary. And that is a gentleman named Jason Chow from San Francisco, California, asks, Dear Wizard, I demand to know why Moon Knight comics are not worth as much as some of the other titles, like Ghost Rider. At Wizard's response, because Moon Knight's lame. <laughs> well, <laughs> there it is. I mean, there wasn't much to argue with at the time. It wasn't long after that uh, Stephen Platt shows up doing his Todd McFarlane-esque art on Moon Knight and is immediately hired away by Extreme Studios and does profit. Okay, see, because I, th- I thought that happened like mid-90s. I thought that was more like 94, 95. It was issues like 55 to 60, though. So if it's uh, a monthly book, then I think it would go back to this point. Yeah, see, I, I only ever read, I read like a Moon Knight Essentials book, you know, like 10 years ago. So I got like all the early stories and kind of got the concept of Moon Knight down you know a guy who has a lot of different personas that he puts on to get his information and but it's interesting because with moon knight to me i know him most from the fact that there was always a moon knight movie in the works there was always a moon knight tv show there was always something being reported oh yeah this the studio is developing moon knight and it never happens they wanted a batman so badly so i picked up moon knight probably Five or six years ago, they they did a re-release of like a new story arc for him. I think the first five or six issues. After issue like three, I just bailed out. I just bought them anyway, and I didn't read any further. I just can't get into that character because it, they don't know what it, they want to make it be, and he it's frustrating because it's a cool concept, but it's just they, they don't know how to execute that character at all. And to have it on any team up makes no sense. That character should just be a solo character. Like the Punisher. Well, he's his own team. He's got all those alter egos, you know? Right. Like, he, he doesn't need other people in his book with him, really. <laughs> he yeah. just changes clothes and talk to himself. Well, now that we've got that out of the way, I think it's time we jump into... The Wave Riders Wayback Machine. And 
And we're going way back to July of 1992. And there are some rock-solid movies for this particular month. First, we're going to start with a movie that I don't care who you are. Everybody went to see this movie in the theater. Everybody cried at the end, even though there's no crying in baseball. <laughs> a league of their own on July 1st. Gotta love it. Randomly, I got free tickets to a baseball card convention, which obviously I had no interest in. But I was just like, well, it's free. So th- the only two things I did there, there was one booth where you could go up and there was a green screen where you would be interviewed by like Bob Costas or some guy. I don't know who it was, but it was just like, what'd you think about the game? And then you were supposed to come up with some like 30 second commentary and then you got a DVD of yourself, you know? And instead I was in line for like a half hour waiting. So I wrote a rap where I referenced Tommy Lasorda and Slim Fast. <laughs> and I'm like, just all this random stuff, like anything I knew about baseball, I just like threw it in there. Uh, and I still, I have it. So, Maybe I can put that up on social media. Please. Please do. But the other thing I went to do was they had all of the the women's baseball leagues from the 40s. Unfortunately, the players weren't there the day I was there, but they had their uniforms. They had all these like historic photos and programs and stuff. So I got to kind of take in that world and see some of the artifacts of that time, which was neat. It's kind of a funny thing about this movie. So Kevin and I both live in New York. A couple of years after this movie, my family took a trip up to Cooperstown to go to the Baseball Hall of Fame, and we went like to the tour and everything. And I remember in the movie, they showed them like the tour of them going into the Women's Baseball League section, and it's like beautiful pavilion, yada yada yada. In the actual Cooperstown, it's like a footnote. It's very very small. It's a very little. Sm- I was so bummed. It was like, it's like, but it was just so cool looking in the movie. But it was all fake, and it was not the real Cooperstown location. That was kind of a bummer. But so the next movie is another really really solid hit. Like I, I it's another. It's a cult classic movie, and it is starring Jean Claude Van Damme in Universal Soldier. Jean-Claude Van Damme, this is a Dolph Lundgren movie. It's Van Damme. It's Van Damme. This is interesting. I feel like this franchise has legs for some reason. I mean, I think they've made at least four sequels to Universal Soldier. And Van Damme came back eventually, right? Yeah, he did do one that came out a few years ago, yes. I think he did one and two, and then the most recent one. So the next movie, I have a funny story about I never saw this in the theater but I was my sleeping over my uncle's house one night. It was like my parents were away, and he's like, oh, you want to go rent a movie? And we saw this movie that had, like, cartoony art on the cover, and it looked cool. And he's like, oh, we can watch this movie. It's a movie called Cool World on <laughs> July 10th, and it is not a children's movie. No. No matter what, if you think it looks like Roger Rabbit, it's not a children's movie. Do not do bring Roger your Rabbit children to watch this movie either. Yeah. <laughs> True, that's also very true, yes. Yeah, this one just takes it to the next level. I mean, if you're a Kim Basinger fan, you're going to love it, because you're seeing plenty of Kim in more ways than one. But yeah, this is a movie I decided to give it another watch the other night. You know, it was late. My baby son was not sleeping, so I got the Tubi app up on my phone, and I'm watching Cool World, and I'm just like, wow, yeah, this is still wacky. But what I didn't remember was that there's a whole scene that takes place in a comic book store because Cool World is a comic book in this universe that one of the main characters 
draws. And so it was really interesting to actually go and look on the walls and see what comics were on display. I thought it was a, a pretty neat time capsule from that perspective. Kevin, you a Cool World fan? I'm a Cool World fan, and it's one of those ones that incites argument so much. Because with this being a comic show, and a lot of us are also into animation, the amount of times they have to explain to someone, no, these ones are for kids and these ones are for adults. But so many people, I'd honestly say majority of society, if it's a comic or a cartoon, they think it's for kids. Mm-hmm. And this happens over and over again. And there's an example every year when both are just a medium. It would be like if someone, the only TV show they ever watched was Friends, and they assumed, oh, then all TV shows are like that. <laughs> that's one style of that this medium can tell you know spawn is not fireman it's not cerberus it's not love and rockets it's not bone it's not you know they're all comics a cool world is not roger rabbit is not pinocchio and it's also not fritz the cat yeah for sure and i will say the one fun fact i feel like is that so in this movie you know kim base she starts out as a doodle or a cartoon and then wants to become real which she does but her character seems very very close to honey hornet in wayne's world 2 like she's playing the same character she's dressing the same so (laughs) she's you know she's the woman who seduces garth if anybody's ever noticed that connection or that parallel I'm interested now to like watch them, and we'll see. Now, the last movie that came out in July that's of note is Honey, I Blew Up the Baby. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I actually, I watched this the other day, too. I just saw it on Disney+, Plus and I was just like, man, I love those first two movies. They're so good. No nap! <laughs> like, that's the thing I always <laughs> remembered the most. You know what's so interesting about that movie, though? His car is solar-powered, and he's got solar panels in the car, and that's how he drives around. And I'm like, that was 92? And we still haven't figured out how to do a solar-powered car yet? Like, I, I can't understand that. Get Wade Zielinski on the phone. Serious. He's going to sell us that patent. The, Maybe they're, that's what Rick Moranis has been doing at home all these years. <laughs> I don't need your Ghostbusters money. I'm not coming back for that reunion film. Rumor has it they're either doing a reboot or a sequel direct to Disney Plus with Rick Moranis coming back. Finally. It's interesting. You won't come back for Ghostbusters, but he's like, when it's my franchise, but I'm the star. I'll be back. Now, we're going to jump into some music. So the first album I could tell you right now I never listened to. This is not my genre of music. On July 14th, Megadeth dropped down... Countdown to Extinction featuring Sweating Bullets. Did you guys were you guys Megadeth fans? Hello me, it's me again. <laughs> God, it's such a good album. It's so good. Sweating Bullets is fantastic and really start to understand what Dave Mustaine could be. Um Foreclosure of a Dream is insane when you realize what he's talking about. The biggest enemy Megadeth has had against greater success and for more people to know them is their name. Because yeah. Lyrics-wise, music-wise, passion for it, great albums, but they're called Mega Death. <laughs> you know, like at least Metallica is Metallica. You can put that up anywhere. But Mega Death's fantastic. I think a lot of children of the '80s becoming teenagers of '90s were like, "I need something a little more," and I don't understand how the world works, and things don't feel right, and I need answers. And you throw an album like this down, you're like, "Oh, the world's just screwed up." Even for rich people, cool, great. 
but I can rock out while you educate me, Dave Mustaine. I actually was watching The Decline of Western Civilization Part 2, The Metal Years, last night, and Megadeth closes out that documentary that's just talking about all the, you know, the heavy metal of that era. And yeah, it's, it was really interesting to see Dave Mustaine just like explaining, he's just like, yeah, we don't like labels, it limits our ability to, because like if we're a satanic metal band, then all we can sing about is evil, and so on and so forth. He's like, but with this, now we can sing about politics, or we can sing about whatever. So it's just like you're saying, Kevin, like Megadeth in his mind is all encompassing. They're asking like, well, why do you sing so much about death? He's just like, it's about inevitability. It's very deep music if you look past it. And my older cousin, Russell, he was super into horror and Megadeth. And so when I would go to his house, he literally had like a leather jacket with Megadeth patches and stuff all over it. So that was my education. So this was another album, but the song in particular was colossal in this year i was a big fan of this album and and this song in particular was house of pain featuring jump around on july 21st jump around jump around jump up jump up and get down irish rock rap house music well i don't know what they are they're a weird sound house of pain (laughs) i love this song i don't know why it was like every you know middle school basketball game this was the song that was pumping all the time you were always hearing it all the time i I mean this this was the year of jumping crisscross crisscross and now house of pain wants you to jump around so much jumping no wonder we all needed our reebok pumps with a lot of jumping That is true. So the next album that came out was an album that I didn't appreciate till probably I was in college was the self-titled album by Moby. And I didn't, I mean, 10 years old, I wasn't listening to Moby. But when I was in college and just like hanging out and doing homework or watching movies over that, Moby was like a regular like loop on my mp3 player at the time i never connected with moby i mean obviously i heard his hits on the radio but I, he was just an anomaly to me because i'm like he, isn't he a dj is he a producer is he a songwriter like i don't understand who moby is but yeah he's all of the above i appreciated him with gwen stefani but that might be for other reasons <laughs> there's actually one song that i really really like of his well it's from the miami vice soundtrack for the movie that came out early 2000s or so i forget what it's called but it's a fantastic song the last thing on our list here and then we'll be closing up the wave riders way back machine is bare naked ladies gordon on july 28th i was not a bare naked ladies fan i dated a girl that was obsessed with bare naked ladies and i could not get through a song i was like how do you like this music? It's terrible. I hate it. <laughs> yeah, and this is like their debut album. I don't know if they had a hit on this that probably their their diehard fans would go and say, oh, yes, so they have this, this, and this. And they always play this live, you know, and it's their it's their great song. But, but I think this is just like getting them like, we're Canadian. We have funny lyrics. Oh, boy. Anyway, so that's our uh, Wave Riders Wayback Machine for this month. All right. Well, I think it's time we jump into our table of contents and uh so this is wizard issue 11 and on the cover definitely 
Spawn. There's no getting around it. Spawn was coming. Last issue, they were promoting it. They had three different ads, like make sure you buy it. Special insert trading card. You gotta get Spawn in your next issue of Wizard, and it worked. People were buying it. But as far as uh, Spawn himself, we're gonna save that for the finale of the show. In the meantime, some of the other articles that they decided to put in here, the first one is titled No Impact Whatsoever, which was an editorial, and it was previously Patrick Daniel O'Neill, who's the editor, had written that comics of the 90s had no entry point for new readers, and it didn't give them a chance to learn the basics of comics through beginner titles. And he was saying that DC had impact comics, and some people might remember seeing these other acts, The Fly, The Web, The Jaguar, like, they, they were never super popular, but Steven, uh, who was on a, our previous episode, mentioned that he actually gave out impact comics at one of his birthday parties to the joy of no one. <laughs> but now DC was putting that line on hiatus for, quote, retooling, and he said it's likely going to be m- making it more grim and gritty, which is what people want, what they think will sell. And his main focus was writers especially need to figure out how to create good single-issue stories rather than long arcs so that anyone can pick up a book, especially a new reader, and feel like they're on board, feel like they understand, they see the character from beginning to end in a plot and they could say okay this is what they're all about not okay if i gotta buy three or four more issues before i really understand what their story is so i'm curious about your thoughts and your take on that guys do you like a self-contained story or do you prefer to be involved in an ongoing series or an ongoing event so i don't think comics from this time maybe even from direct to market onto today has solved this problem yet you need new readers you need readers come and be excited for it when i started i was great you know you know spider-man because spider-man's just in the pop culture zeitgeist spider-man passes the grandma test your grandma knows who spider-man is and she doesn't know who spawn is but she knows who spider-man is and then i was discovering stuff on my own what helped was those marvel handbooks oh here's all these heroes and all these stories and everything let me buy a bunch of these and get caught up and figure out what's going on there wasn't internet also not the whole company line was all intertwined if i just wanted a spider-man book that's all i had to get i only had to get an avengers book i didn't have to get 50 books for this giant story i don't understand why you wouldn't have marvel or dc or anyone like this impact line folds which it's weird anyways because it's dc but these are archie comics superheroes that they're publishing so it's weird anyways but why wouldn't you do something like this a dollar an issue self-contained with here's a batman one a superman one a wonder woman one and a justice league one here's four books they don't tie into anything else they don't tie into each other if you buy issue one and issue 10 on the same day you don't you're not missing story in between they're all self-contained those characters are going to sell better than this impact line an idea that i've said for years and i wish one of the companies would do you have decades of content put it together square bound black and white on every grocery store and department store magazine rack like shonen jump was five bucks black and white here's a bunch of content if you like it go to your local comic store they have the story all together and in color mom or dad would be like oh yeah go ahead and buy that for five bucks we're getting 200 pages 300 whatever for five bucks as opposed to 132 page issue for five bucks you're getting more bang for your buck and if you don't like it i don't feel like i'm out as much but you get new readers you have it available more 
places than having to figure out there's things called comic stores and I have to find one and then I have to get previews and then I have to figure out where we are in the storyline. Comics are very tough if you don't want to do the work. Yeah, nowadays for sure. Because I mean, if you look at traditionally back in the day in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, every issue had stories that were self-contained. There was a beginning, middle and end all in an issue and that's what you got. Even like with the Marvel books, it was always, you know, villain of the week. Okay, Spider-Man's fighting the Kingpin this week. Okay, now he's fighting the Scorpion, whatever it is. But that was always wrapped up by the end. And yeah, I think it just felt like in the 80s, these events started showing up and then it just ballooned into bigger and bigger events in the 90s. And yeah, it just it became so difficult. <laughs> like every, It's a new event every month. Well, and I think that's why Walking Dead got to be so successful. All you got to read is Walking Dead. That's it comes out once a month and as the show got going it got more popular the whole graphic novel lines at walmart and target and all over the place 15 bucks for one of these yeah i'm in and this is all i gotta read and there's a big number one and a big number two and a big number three on the side so i can keep track of it yeah works for me all right so then next up here was lunch with marvel comics so wizard literally has lunch with the marvel sales manager bruce costa director of sales lou bank and writer fabian nicieza so they are asking this group they're like okay what's the next huge selling book what's it gonna be and the marvel guys predict that the cable limited series is going to be the breakout book of that summer and then they're like followed by spirits of vengeance that'll probably also appeal to some people with the original ghost rider johnny blaze teaming up with the current ghost rider and all of that and Nicieza, though, has a really fun joke. He says, like, I'm going to be the new artist on Spider-Man. He's like, I'll be introducing some new characters. Stickman and Circle Boy. (laughs) I gotta love it. Writer humor. And then they also announced, I found this really fascinating, that much like they had done with the special covers for Spider-Man, when that sold, you know, they had a special edition that they gave, I believe it was, was it the Platinum Edition or the Diamond Edition? I'm trying to remember what they called it, that they gave to retailers who had ordered huge volumes and made it so successful. I think it was Platinum. So now with the X-Men, they're saying, we're going to now reward you all with X-Men cover 1E, which has a full hologram which runs the whole length of the Sideways comic book. And so that is actually basically taking the gatefold cover of that, you know, super deluxe edition of X-Men number one and turned it into one long hologram so you can see the full image. And I wasn't sure that this existed because I had never heard it mentioned. I'd never seen it, but it actually does exist. I found it on eBay. They usually go for around 20 bucks. That's all? Yeah. So we'll throw that up on social media so you guys can know. It is something that you don't have in your collection yet. Get that speculators market going again. Who knows? (laughs) All right, uh, next up is Palmer's Picks. This is a, a section I feel like we, we jump over most often because they're always talking about kind of the indie comic scene, and that really wasn't what we were into when we we're 10, 11 years old. Palmer's Picks right here is talking about the history of horror comics, which is something Wizard had been writing about since the beginning. Like, there was always some type of horror comics content, ad, whatever it was, but this one is really kind of that standard history, right? Talking about, okay, you know, Max Gaines created East 
DC Comics, and it was controversial because it was so violent. And then Dr. Frederick Wortham writes Seduction of the Innocent, and he's convincing families and parents and church groups and whoever else to burn comic books en masse, you know, bonfires. And then all of that kind of gave way, and eventually they get more into Mad Magazine. Now it's a subversive humor magazine instead. But as far as, like, horror comics go, did you guys ever pick up a horror title? Can you think of one where you're like, oh, yeah, that was a pretty good book? No, never. I've done horror. Most of it would probably lean towards... I mean, Walking Dead's technically a horror, I guess. It's superhero type horror. Your Vampirella, Lady Death. I love Hex Slash. Love Hex Slash. If anyone hasn't done that yet, that's fantastic. It's pretty much the final, final girl in a horror movie and her adventures. I am desperately searching for a comic that was in my grandparents' attic. It was oversized black and white, so the magazine style to get away from comic code. Mm-hmm. And it's it's got to be a creepy or an eerie or something like that that one of my uncles left up there. And I remember taking it like, ooh, a comic. And I took it home to read, and I got so scared, I threw it away. Oh. And now I want to find it. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I just remember there's like some cannibal story where like someone had car trouble and they're looking for help and they went to a place and then they realized they were eating people and then he tries to escape and he's served next on the menu like that's very very basic what's still in my head probably 30 plus years ago and to just search that on google doesn't work yes (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah so i've been trying to go through like eerie and creepy and any similar magazine archives to just see what i can figure out and i mean this is going to take a while it's probably going to be able to be in some at a random convention or or thrift store or whatever and discover it and there's been stuff that you guys have mentioned on previous shows and this palmer's picks really has it as well with the history is how between the certain articles and especially the letters how desperate the entire comic reading audience is for someone to give them information no internet i'll guarantee you very few schools had anything on comics when i was in high school i did a write a report on someone that you idolize and think was important and not a lot of people know about i did jack kirby I had to borrow things from people at the comic store because no library had it around. I couldn't get it. Interlibrary loan wasn't a thing yet. Like, there's people writing questions. Uh, the previous issue, issue 10, had someone go, what's Crisis? Crisis was just 86. Yeah. This is 92. And it's someone brand new that's like, hey, this thing called Crisis happened and no one will tell me what it is. And I'm interested. Like, we take that stuff for granted. Or even if you don't know, you can look it up. There's been times where I'm like, what the heck was this story? And I'll, you know, I'll do a Google search or Wikipedia or whatever. But I think one of the reasons that Wizard became so important is because they were the answer or they would try and if they didn't know they'd ask i I don't know if toy fair wizard did it years later but the mystery over wonder bread (laughs) he-man you know that went on for years this was our hub to just find out anything on comics because who are we gonna ask i could ask my mom or dad something about the new york yankees i could ask them hey explain watergate to me but if i go hey, how come Spider-Man and Superman can't meet? They don't know. Yeah, it's true. And Wizard made it understandable because there were publications like the Comics Journal and all sorts of stuff that were a little bit more academic, I guess you would say, about comics. And Wizard definitely made it like, look, here's the fine details, but in a way that's kind of like bullet pointed. Like, here it is. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. You get it? All right, now let's move on because this is what it influenced that's happening now. So yeah, you're right. It was a very, very important resource in that way and so horror comics are a genre that maybe again there was 
the mainstream books that had horror elements like Ghost Rider and soon to be a few more that were uh, about to be released at this time we're going to get to shortly but but yeah I think it's kind of an overlooked genre in a lot of ways when in the 70s it was pretty big I mean 70s had a lot of horror titles that's your comics code lessening the restrictions when you look at original comics code and they couldn't say zombies so they write zombies which is <laughs> ridiculous you can't have a where you know like it's werewolf by night and living mummy for a reason because that got around the comics code for it going black and white which i, I mentioned creepy and eerie but also mad magazine savage sort of conan you know like there were ways for them to go around it usually for the horror ones you have a group of mom and dads and grandparents that were influenced by frederick wortham and Stutchen of the innocent and comics are bad but maybe thanks to Adam Waster, you know, Spider-Man cartoon, they're like, well, there's a place for it. You bring home a horror book, you're done. You're done in all of your comics. <laughs> so moving on, some of the notable issues released this month. Eric Larson finally releases The Savage Dragon, number one. We got X-Men, number 11, which was the last Jim Lee X-Men story before he had finally moved on to Image at this point, but that was the last one in the pipeline that they put out on the stands. And for Michael... The Batman Returns movie adaptation. Which I definitely had back in the day, along with the Collector's Magazine by Tops, which uh, we'll be returning to that shortly as well. Finally, here in the Wizard Comic Watch section, they highlight two books. The first was the initial appearance of Jack Monroe as Nomad in Captain America number 282, but this is when he was wearing the cape and mask. So for those who don't know, at a certain point, Captain America kind of became disenfranchised with the United States government. He gives up being Captain America. He becomes Nomad, so he gets a new costume, and he's out fighting crime, but he eventually comes back to being Cap, and he gives this persona to Jack Monroe, who was actually a Bucky, but he was Bucky to a replacement Captain America in the 50s that fought communists, and they were, it's very convoluted, but (laughs) kind of entertaining in and of itself. But at this time, they also mention that Nomad is back because he had gotten a new look, this long-haired, trench coat-wearing, stubble-faced look in Captain America Annual number 8. And so now that he has his new series and it's a big deal, they're saying this is definitely a book that's going to go up in value. But also in in the mix they are highlighting secret wars number eight which is the first appearance of spider-man's black costume now we talked a lot about venom back in issue number nine but let's find out a little bit more about the value of this book let's jump into the punisher's price guide looking at like i said oh like adam said uh i have, I have a lot of out-of-body experiences where i call myself adam <laughs> it's very strange it's happened more than once now so uh, secret wars number eight was listed for just four dollars and fifty cents which seems crazy because venom was already an incredibly popular character for the book where the alien costume debuted to have such a low value seems strange now in 2020 the book sells for 60 to $75 ungraded on average, 
and graded copies can go for the range of 150 to 300 dollars that's pretty cool this is a book in my long box this is you know one of those issues one of the few i splurged on back in the day so i'm glad to know it's worth something although in probably 95 when i bought it i definitely paid more than four dollars and fifty cents for it so <laughs> after this point it, it does go up in value just a few months later it's already at like 14 dollars, and i think it just keeps climbing so that always leads to the question right did wizard plant the seed for that to have value then they highlight it now everybody says oh yeah good point that was really the first appearance of venom venom's huge let's throw it up on the wall now for five times that much hmm. but i just think it's, it's interesting to imagine because i i would say for a lot of comics collectors they know that's an iconic book but it sounds like marvel superheroes secret wars was kind of forgotten it was just like ah well that was a publicity stunt it happened back in the day the books are not worth anything and then now oh there's something that made them valuable you know it's i don't even know if, if it's the book or if it's just the cover it's a great image yeah the, be- the, the cover is a beautiful image that i wonder if that may be where the value lies because the story again like you said it's all forgettable well, look at the difference between the spider-man black costume and the nomad you know both as as comics to speculate on here in a way it's kind of like when either comic series or even in wrestling when something happens that's so ridiculous the audience goes we're gonna just pretend that never happened you know marvel dc wwe whoever's like but we made it yeah no we're gonna just ignore it and pretend you never did that and leave it alone and but good things will always find their way so i think in a way your wizard audience is like yeah let's go nomad no we actually don't care so we're going to just leave this alone and you can find it in dollar bits. Ooh, but the Spider-Man thing we do care about. And 25 years later, we still care about. So it has value. So it's it's more like they're shining a flashlight on it, but it's us, up to us to decide if we're going to pick it up. They're bringing something to our attention and they're like, all right, let's see what you guys say about it. Are you going to buy it? You're not going to buy it. You're going to pay the price? You're not going to pay the price. But now let's flip through Gambit's deck of cards. So the main headline here in the world of trading cards is that Marvel Universe Series 3 is going to be the first time that Marvel characters are going to be debuting in a trading card set and not in a comic book appearance. So the three characters, teams, I guess you would say this is going to be the case for is going to be Night Stalkers, The Darkhold, and Slapstick. They were really firecrackers out of the gate, let me tell you, because I never even heard of these characters or teams 25 years later. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think that anybody outside of Night Stalkers featuring Blade and Blade eventually getting his series of movies, uh, yeah, the, these characters didn't catch fire. Although I will mention Slapstick. Well, if, for those who don't know, it's basically like this cartoon character brought to life. And so he's invulnerable because he can get smashed or destroyed and then he just come back together. I had a friend and we used to create our own comics characters and he created this guy named Screwy Louie, who was basically the same thing you know a live action cartoon character i was always like did he know about slapstick did he get a pack of marvel universe series three cards or was that really original in his mind i do not talk ill about slapstick slapstick was in the avengers academy and also a former new warrior 
So wow. therefore, he will always have my respect. I think it's a cool concept, honestly. Like, I, I was, I, I mean, it, it is a character design that feels like it doesn't fit in the Marvel universe, but at the same time, it's a, it's a unique concept that goes along with the cool world idea or the Who Framed Roger Rabbit idea that we were talking about before. Cartoons in the real world. Avengers can be kind of dark with him because he's like, look at me. Who's going to take me seriously? So he would go too far on things to try to get respect or taken seriously or because this look made him a little screwed up in the head anyways. So they did a real interesting, I want to say mature, and I don't mean like, you know, PG or or R or anything, but just like a serious take on what should have been a comical character in a good way. It was very interesting. Now, the other news here is that Skybox International has made Magic Johnson their spokesperson. The wizard's like, why would you do that? And they said, well, magic appeals to all demographics. There are very few celebrities out there that can say that. And they actually say that magic collected trading cards as a kid. So he is genuinely excited about being involved in all that. And additionally, they reveal the reason that they changed their name from Impel to Skybox, because if you look at the Marvel Universe Series 1 and 2 trading cards, you're seeing Impel on the on the cards, and then here it's going to Skybox and going forward. So, And they said the reason is that the name Skybox relates to sports and entertainment, implying the best seats in the house. So when you look back at your old trading cards now, you wonder, why Skybox? Well, there's your answer. I didn't there's... know that about that. That's interesting. There's a couple interesting things here. Uh, one, apparently, the Skybox to Imp- or Impel to Skybox name came late because in the trading card column they actually still call it Impel. Yeah. So I'm thinking <laughs> that like cer- certain parts of the magazine were you know went to bed earlier than others. But there, there's two things. They're saying that the sports card market will move to entertainment. So when you're asking uh, if Wizard is influencing the market on like the Spider-Man, the Nomad one earlier. They are absolutely trying to influence your trading card collectors here. Here's the new hot thing. Here's the cool thing. We got to buy it now. All the money you spent on baseball cards, move it to these entertainment cards instead. The one that killed me is they're like, oh, but it's not just for collecting or for speculation. Trading cards are for kids. Of course. There's also a Playboy trading card ad in this issue, and there's one for Olivia's art in the previous issue, which are not trading cards that kids can buy. Yeah, it was honestly, it was like every single type of property they could get their hands on. They're like, yep, let's produce them. Let's put them out there. Everybody wants trading cards right now. Even to the point of on the the latest Retro Network podcast, I know that they were talking about random 90s things and Mickey brought up watching QVC and getting this like limited edition Jeff Gordon trading card that was like gold plated or whatever. His mom's like, can't you see? There's only 10,000 printed or something. He's like, yeah, mom, that's not how it works. But it was just like, like it was everywhere. Every property could be turned into a card that was now collectible. Well, Michael, you know, we brought up Batman Returns earlier, and there's something interesting brewing over there in Gotham City. So why don't you take us into Heroes in Motion? As you all know, I'm a big Batman fan, especially Michael Keaton as Batman. And 92, with 
got Batman Returns coming out. Yes, another article about summer of 1992's hottest film. What more could Andy Mangles possibly have to say about Batman Returns at this point? It turns out a whole lot more. Like a bombshell. Did you know that Tim Burton wrote and submitted a script for Batman the movie in 1985, long before he got his gig to direct the 1989 film? Dated October 21st, 1985, Burton wrote a 43-page treatment with collaborator Julie Hickson, who worked on the film Frankenweenie with him and went on to write Homeward Bound 2, Lost in San Francisco. How about it? How about that one? <laughs> I'm a big Homeward Bound Incredible Journey, but I never knew there was a Homeward Bound 2, Lost in San Francisco. I'll have to look that one up. In this story, the Waynes get gunned down by a teenage Joker in an ice cream truck after attending a costume party where Thomas Wayne was wearing a Batman costume. Bat is in like a man bat type of look i guess the main story of bruce becoming batman is set many years later as rupert thorne who is the mob boss that organized the hit on his parents is running for mayor and the joker escapes from prison the joker's antics batman has to deal with involve the clown prince of crime making subways run backwards forcing his way into a cameo on the love boat whoa hey now um and <laughs> and launching a gotham city christmas tree into space it feels kind of like national lampoon's christmas vacation when they launched the santa sleigh into space but <laughs> bruce is also dating a gal named silver saint cloud Ugh. <laughs> The Joker filling parade balloons with grimacing gas, as seen in the 1989 film, originated here. But in this treatment, the Joker is also responsible for killing the Flying Graysons as well, which actually, in the first Batman 89 film, was supposed to be how it ended, because there's supposed to be a chase where the Joker kills the Graysons, and then Batman chases Joker down the streets of Gotham on horseback and jack nicholson during filming said i hate this ending we're going to rewrite it and they went to a diner and rewrote it in london just fun fact hmm. that's where you got the the bell tower scene instead so with help of his henchmen the penguin catwoman and the riddler what huh that doesn't make sense. his henchmen <laughs> or penguin catwoman and Riddler? oh my goodness i'm glad this script didn't get made so bruce adopts dick grayson who becomes robin and saves Batman after the Dark Knight falls from one of the balloons through a glass skylight of Natural History Museum. Okay, so they kind of use the scene where he goes through the glass in the museum is one of my favorite parts of the movie because it's just mm -hmm. so beautiful. But that's kind of cool that they kind of reworked it and, and put it into the actual movie, which is good. Mangle says, overall, when compared to the final film version, Burton and Hickson's original batman is a silly trivial story something a pair of geek fanboys would dream up on junior high afternoon lunch break he doesn't really cover much of the 92 movie but yeah it's, it's weird it's like batman returns nope it's kind of a filler article in a way because it has nothing to do with batman returns but we got confirmation as much as people tried to deny it and then realized they were found out and came back around on it over the last 25 years. Marlon Wayans was supposed to be Robin. 
And if you look at that action figure, it's obvious a repaint happened along the way. But it went at least action figure part. This Batman script got me to look at the two movies differently. The two Tim Burton ones that were actually made. Tim Burton never wanted to make a Batman movie, did he? He wanted to make a Joker movie. Yeah. And Batman and Nicholson Keaton, I'm like, oh, yeah, he wanted to make a Joker movie. And he said, oh, I'll make a Batman movie. But his fingers are crossed behind his back because he's like, no, I'm going to make a Joker movie. I'll call it Batman so you get your wish. But I'm making a Joker movie. But any listener, rewind this segment. Or if you have access to the magazine, read this article because you need to hear or see this two or three times to realize how absurd the script is. It's funny you say that Burton wanted to make a Joker film. I've watched Batman 89 a thousand times, probably more. And the funny thing that I have always noticed was during the opening title sequence, Jack Nicholson gets top billing over mm-hmm. Michael Keaton. I think I figured, you know, he's a bigger name, yada, yada, yada. But he got top billing. And I always was like, is he the lead in the movie? Who's your lead then? Like, who is, but obviously it's Batman, but it's interesting that he got the, the first name that you see is Jack Nicholson. It, it's just weird that they tease this article as a Batman Returns article and there's literally nothing to do with it. Like Kevin mentioned, they had a few paragraphs at the beginning. I've seen one dated October 21st, but I don't know if it's the same year online. I'll have to look it up and see if I can find that. Alright, so obviously that movie was all over the place in the media, getting a lot of attention in the summer of 1992, but we know two other guys who don't mind a little bit of hype. Yep, it's time for Robin Todd's Hype Machine. So last episode, we mentioned how Wizard posted an Image Comics release schedule for all of 1992 in their Wizard News section. But it turns out that Image couldn't even get their first title into stores on time. This is something that we kind of were asking about because we kept seeing like, okay, Youngblood is being promoted, but then we didn't see them saying, oh, this is the greatest book of all time or it's selling out or we just weren't getting information. And apparently it is because it wasn't available for them to comment on and so there were some details that were involved there so if you go back to the letters section actually one reader writes in and this is what they had to say so dear magic words number nine had a great cover i don't think all the hoopla around this mystery cover was necessary though the image comics interview was the single best thing in your entire run it was great i've read it over and over again i can't wait for image to start up by the way i think your youngblood release dates are a little early because i don't know anybody who could even come close to a youngblood and your book says the issue number three should be out already. I'd heard something about artwork being lost in the mail. Was that what was holding it up? Chris Woodard, Orchard Park, New York. To which Wizard responds, Howdy, Chris. I'm glad you liked our mystery cover. We here at Wizard thought it was pretty nifty. As for the Youngblood number one release date, it was all screwed up. The first issue of that series was about two months late, and we kept running the later issues according to their original release dates, so they were also screwed up. And as for the artwork lost in the mail theory, we've heard it too. It seems that Liefeld had completed the book a little behind schedule to start with, and then some pages were lost in transit, forcing him to completely redraw them. The end result was a two-month delay. Wow. That did not bode well. And here it's just being reported, you know, we had a whole interview with Liefeld last issue. No mention of that. It's just like, oh, it's in the letters section. So only the most astute and devoted readers were going to find out that information, why they couldn't get their hands on Youngblood. I remember 
when Youngblood came out, two fifty cover price because I get yelled at for spending so much on a comic. <laughs> um, but the rumor was that the holdup was because a uh, legal issue that Marvel was trying to bar Liefeld and bar Image from releasing any comics, so it got held up a couple months. And this was flat out urban legend at the time. There's nothing yeah. but that some had slipped out, like comp copies or one shipment or whatever, and those copies were going for like two hundred dollars because no one knew if the rest of the shipment would ever be released so this hmm. handful that trickled out were getting huge prices at the time i can't find anything i tried so hard there's nothing this could have just been comic shop telephone game for all i knew right and what's interesting though is that in the wizard news section of this issue even with the delay of youngblood number one or maybe because of it because there was so much anticipation youngblood number one sold out so quickly it immediately went to a second print but on the flip side with todd mcfarland releasing spawn he is adamant that no spawn book will ever be released as a second printing gotta buy it when it comes out it's instant collectible but that's ironic since spider-man number one pretty much kicked off that whole trend of multiple prints gaining value to begin with obviously todd wasn't the one making those publishing decisions but he was the one most heavily associated with that what would you call a second print i would call second print you know it's got a little indica on it it says second print maybe different cover there's something to differentiate it from the original run. Todd McFarlane, and th- these were sold in Walmarts and everywhere, had a VHS How to Draw series. It was called like mm-hmm. Imagination with Todd McFarlane or something like that. And every one of them came packaged with an issue of Spawn, which is slightly different than the original release, therefore technically a second printing. Same with the action figures later on. Exactly. I guess he's just saying to the direct market, perhaps, is his caveat there. (laughs) And then also, the Market Watch reports that when this miniseries is done, the Youngblood books will be collected and sold at Walmart. Plus, Liefeld is going to be adding an issue zero. So yeah, I guess maybe he's trying to make up for it. He's like, well, here's a little extra. Sorry it was so late. <laughs> but also now this issue since he's providing the cover art obviously you'll recall that todd mcfarlane provided the original wizard number one cover with spider-man now he's back with his own creation this uh article is called spawning a new image interview with todd mcfarlane and todd reveals that he actually doesn't read any comics at all so that he's not influenced by anybody else even accidentally they're like who do you read he's like no i don't i, I don't read anything they're like oh <laughs> and then for those who are maybe not fully aware Todd McFarlane's earliest work was for Marvel Comics Epic line he did some backup stories in Coyote uh, which nobody probably remembers or read but then he moved over to DC and he started doing Batman books he did Batman year two he was the second artist on that and so he mentions that he went from DC to Marvel in the late 80s because Roy Thomas at DC quote would have kept me working until doomsday basically saying he really liked liked me i never had a problem with him he always had something he wanted me to do but he went to marvel to prove if it was his talent or just an editor that liked him personally that would keep him working which i thought was an interesting way to go about your career it's like well i'm gonna take a chance i want to see how awesome i really am McFarland also claims that Rob was ready to publish Youngblood without telling Todd, like he didn't give him release dates. So even though they had discussed, you know, forming image, we're putting everything in place.
place. And he said if he had known Rob's plans, he would have had Spawn ready to go at the same time Youngblood was supposed to come out. But the main difference is that Spawn is the only ongoing image title at launch, whereas all the rest, as we've discussed in previous episodes, were going to be miniseries to kind of test the waters. Do people like this character? Okay, we'll make it an ongoing. Todd was 100% on board with Spawn to begin with and believes that his title brings the company prestige. <laughs> One thing I'm curious about, Kevin, I don't know if you noticed because I know you have the issue in your hands and last issue as well, but there are these ads for the Spawn comic and the artwork on those ads feels subpar like sketchbook yes. images so you notice that it's, okay it, it's, it's all the same image too yeah for most of them but i think it shows how fast image was happening especially with a publication schedule for wizard or even for for image or for marvel like the image founders still had comics coming out from marvel mm -hmm. they still weren't you know through with all that plus they got their own ones on schedule now there's two spaces where the image logo appears in this magazine and neither in any of the articles in fact the articles still say image from malibu press or just malibu press there's an ad on the inside front cover and there's an ad on the back of the poster both of those have image i because it's moving that fast yeah, it's just like, okay, we got this page done, ready to go. Okay, that one has it. This one doesn't. Yep. So I, I think for Todd McFarlane for Spawn, he's like, shoot, I have to get a, an image to them. Let me just get this together in an hour or so, send it off to them. It's fine. I'll do something cooler later for the cover or for the actual issues of Spawn, of course. But you bring up Liefeld wanting to get stuff out. And hey, I'm going to have Youngblood, and it has two teams. And then I'm going to have Brigade, and that's a team. And then I'm going to have Profit, and that that's a guy too. And he's doing so much at once, whereas Todd is... Obviously taking character that he's had since he was a kid, updating it, doing a lot with it, has this long origin story, has a plan. And Todd and Rob, at the head of Image, I would say at the time, is like, what's the cartoon dogs, Spike and Tyke, I think? that like one's wearing a bowler hat a big bulldog and the other one's this little yappy dog running around like what are we gonna do spike what are we gonna do today so todd and rob are kind of like that where rob's the young little yappy dog running around getting in trouble doing stuff without thinking and todd's like listen it's not it's not a bad idea but let's calm down let's look into it let's get our <laughs> business going here i'm all for your idea buddy but maybe we should, you know, read a book or talk to some people before we jump out there. Yeah, definitely. So let, let's see how that philosophy between the two of them then shaped up in this issue. So as far as the hype tally goes, Rob gets 10 mentions. Todd only beats him by two with 12. So that brings our running total. Rob is at 70. Todd is just behind him at 67. So now, speaking of all this spawn talk, it's time that we get into a little bit more about this character as we decide to roll through here so what can you tell us a little bit kevin about either the development or the promotion or the explanation of this character and really what spawn means spawn and todd mcfarland absolutely intertwined you can't separate the two Todd did so much for Spider-Man, but we know there's Romita and Stanley and, you know, all sorts of other ones beforehand. But all that makes Spawn cool and amazing character is flat out Todd McFarlane. So Todd wanted to just do cool comics. That's where you get the capes. That's where you get the spider webbing. That's where you get the crazy angles and everything. And he said, if I gave you something cool to look at the page, you're not going to notice if I mess up a hand or foot or something like that, because I've given you something cool. So the Spawn idea was one that he had when he was a kid, just drawing comics for fun. So he updated a little bit for Image, made it look cool, and sat down probably, 
honestly, probably thankfully because of the self-titled Spider-Man comic that he got to write. He had this long, epic plan. It takes four issues to really get an idea of what's going on in Spawn. Honestly, probably seven before you really have an idea, and then it just goes nuts. Now, Spawn is Al Simmons, special soldier, we'll say CIA, whatever. Does all the missions, all the dirty work. Probably done some things that aren't, you know, on the moral up and up. He dies. He makes a deal with the devil. Real monkey's paw kind of thing. Well, we, we can't call it devil in comics. And I, I forgive me ahead of time. There's two things on here that I'm going to not be able to pronounce correctly. And this is one of them. But they call him like Mal, Malbogula. Mal, Mal, something. Malbolgia, yeah. Yeah. It's a devil character in Spawn. Hey, devil. I want to go back to my wife. Is there any kind of deal we can make? Sure. So he shows up. Problem is, he's forgotten most of his memory. It's five years later. His wife has remarried, had a child. And he comes back as this hell spawn with all sorts of crazy powers that he does not quite understand. Well, thankfully, he has a mentor. In fact, he has sort of an angel and a devil on him. Spawned is because he's lost, because he's confused, because he's a mess. He's kind of hanging out in the alley with all the with all the hobos and bums. And one of them, and here's the second name I'm not going to pronounce correctly, Keglistrato, Kegliastro, something like that. Helps him out, mentors him, just being a buddy. And then he's got this weird clown guy that's trying to influence him as well. So as we discover later on, these are pretty much like two sides to the story. Hey, Spawn, formerly El Simmons, you're supposed to come back to bring evil souls to the devil, and then you're going to lead that army to take over the world. Kind of stuck. Or you can try to fight it, but that's not going to work well either. So now, Todd McFarlane out of nowhere has given us this dark, moral tale with tons of cool action, tons of cool ideas. Todd McFarlane, through the Spawn character, does something pretty interesting, though. He's created something that could have worked at Marvel, could have worked at DC, if only they were willing to share. And honestly, I think Spawn as he is, hey, I'm going to give you all this power. I'm going to give you everything you've ever wanted. But it turns out I still control you. I'm still in charge of you. And you can have other people come along. You can have other people copy you. You can have other people imitate you. You can get all these accolades. But in the end, when your time is done, I own you. And I really think it's Todd making an example of all that was Marvel and DC and the whole reason to leave and form Image. I don't think you get modern-day Spider-Man without Todd McFarlane. From the way he is drawn on everything, from all the merchandise, the posters... Hell, even when we finally got a Spider-Man movie, the way he moved is how Todd McFarlane made him move. All the crazy swinging through the city and everything. That comes from Todd McFarlane. There was even a Toy Biz action figure that was one of the most posable figures ever created. Because now you can put it in the positions that Todd McFarlane drew and then everyone that came along later. So I don't blame him to leave and form an image when when you have Spider-Man, one of the most iconic characters on the planet, and every single bit of art shown up is influenced by how he drew it, and he doesn't get an extra penny. Completely makes sense. Yeah, I mean, Spawn has lasted now. It's well over 300 issues. It's called the longest-run independent title in history. I have a problem calling it independent at this point. I don't know if Spawn would work at Marvel. I could see it working at DC a little bit more, especially when, when like, Vertigo came out for, for DC. But I, I do I do like your kind of 
parallels of being the comic manifestation of what it is to be a comic book writer or artist at you know the big two industry. I, I, that's a very interesting hypothesis, and I'm, I'm it's pretty intriguing to think about. Let, let me ask you a question. So, what got you into Spawn? I was at the comic shop wanting to know more. Like we made the jokes before, I bought Avengers. I actually started with West Coast Avengers, which no one did. And I bought (laughs) Solo Avengers. And then I got on for more things. Spider-Man was always cool. So I was getting the new Spider-Man title. I love Eric Larson's run on Spider-Man. Actually, I think Eric Larson might be my favorite comic artist. I just love the, the style that he has, even now through Savage Dragon. But Wizard came along, and it was like, oh, here's a magazine telling me stuff. Here's all the stuff I want to know. Here's interesting articles. Like, I've always been into the research and treating it seriously. And like we said before, yeah, there's comics journals and there's all the Tomorrow's publications like Back Issue and Alter Ego and all, which are wonderful and great, but not for a kid, not for a teenager. I know what's going on. I need it to make sense. And I need the hype, too, honestly. So when Wizard starts coming along, it's like everyone you like that's cool is leaving, forming their own company. Of course I'm getting it. I gotta. Mm. But I think when I start spawning, I'm like, I don't know what this is, but I'm curious. I've never seen anything like Spawn before. I've seen Youngblood. I've seen teams. I've seen bloated teams where there's so many people on the team, I don't care about any of them. I don't know who they are. I don't know their deal. And I'm losing interest quickly. Honestly, same with Wildcats and Cyberforce and Wetworks when that finally came out. But I think there's a reason between... Todd McFarlane taken this character that there, you, you can search for it. There's sketches that he sh- he's revealed from when Todd was like 16 years old. That Spawn was the guy that he would do doodles of. Eric Larson broke into comics with a Savage Dragon type character for a, what was it Megaton comic, I believe. Whereas there's no old, there's definitely no Wildcats. There's no old Cyberforce drawings. There's no old um, Wetworks drawings. But Spawn... And even Savage Dragon come along, and the, there's passion in it because Todd McFarlane and Eric Larson, they cared about these characters. They go back to their childhood. It, it's a safe place for them. But like we've seen before, Marvel's trying to do the horror comics, which I didn't get into. Right. Um, and I, you know, I was kind of scared of horror time. But Spawn is like a horror superhero book, and that was something new at this time. I didn't have the 70s Marvel horror stories, so this was my introduction to superhero horror what's going on he's killing mass murders well that's kind of good he's very violent for it there's this devil aspect there's the satanic aspect clown slash violator is one of the craziest concepts and designs in comics history i think it's just insane you go later and todd brings on great writers so we have frank miller alan moore bill gaiman and the the dave sim one and say what you will about dave sim today and you're right but Dave Sim taking Cerberus in Spawn 10, I believe, and doing this, I, I don't want to use this word, but I can't think of a better word right now. The slavery of the comics characters and the creators of we don't have anything, we're indebted to this, and we're prisoners of this thing that we helped create, too. Spawn becomes something bigger and still going on to today, gotcha. whereas other than Savage Dragon, all these other ones fell apart. There's a reason Witchblade worked and where Cyberforce didn't, because there was some passion behind the character by Silvestri. So that brings me to our next segment, which we kind of started to touch on a little bit, but it's uh, our Robin's Reading Rainbow. Rocky Robin, yeah, Rocky Robin. 
as you can probably guess, we're going to be discussing Spawn number one. For me, I was not a Spawn reader. I've honestly never read a Spawn issue in my entire life. My introduction to Spawn was the movie starring uh, Michael Jai White and John Leguizamo and I loved the movie. I thought it was a brilliant movie, and I really, really enjoyed it. It was way ahead of its time, and probably why it didn't spawn a sequel, so to speak. It was one of those movies where, when it came out, I think fans or people were starving for a superhero movie at the time, and this happened to come out, and comic book fans in particular people loved it i just think they didn't get enough of the mass appeal yeah see i'm the same way michael is i never read spawn comics and the only way that i ever saw it was in the comic shop on the shelf i always thought the covers were cool but it just the horror didn't appeal to me and also i was a little turned off by the hype around it so i just ignored it and enjoyed the reports i got in wizard magazine enjoyed seeing the action figures on the shelf but then i remember the movie coming out which was also big for me and so i get a kick out of that film in fact you know i have the director's cut i have the novelization and you know there's a pretty good soundtrack on that film as well but yeah it's it's spawned never been a big character for me in terms of my personal library which is all the more reason why we wanted to have kevin on this episode who is someone that read the books at the time who has that perspective so kevin i actually haven't had a chance to read spawn number one can you give our listeners a little bit of a overview of what the first issue kind of covers and so for issue one you have the introductory panels which is a voiceover of spawn I want to die, next panel, again. So you know you're in for something different here. Spawn has returned. No one knows what's going on. There's news reports of a soldier named Al Simmons who had died. And it was a very sad thing. The whole world watched because he saved the president from an assassination attempt. So he, he was a pop culture figure in this world. Five years later, there's different stories. There's different things going on. Spawn doesn't even know who he is. He, he's finding out over the course of events, he's having a little bit more memory, a little bit more memory. He remembers dying. He remembers someone betraying him. He remembers someone who placed the order for his friend to betray him. But it's all slowly coming back. We see the power meter, which is fantastic. It just it, It's four nines. I don't know. None of us really knew what it meant for years. But the idea is for every bit of power Spawn uses, his power meter will go down. And when it's over, he goes back to hell. So, sure, he could probably move the entire planet if he wanted to, but that's going to use up all the energy. Spawn would use guns later on. Well, yeah, the guns don't use any power for him. We're introduced to the clown, who shows up a little bit, and we think there's something screwy going on with him. We're also introduced to the detective, Sam and Twitch, who are covering this area of New York City, and are very curious why mafia people are dying, and there's this weird savior of the alleys and the hobos, and trying to put the whole story together. And I'll just mention, Kevin, here that Sam and Twitch are probably the characters I enjoy most in the Spawn universe. They eventually got their own spin-off comic book, and that is actually the most Spawn comics that I have read. I, there was a trade paperback that I picked up at a used bookstore, and I just really dug it. I thought it was cool. It was written by Brian Michael Bendis, so that was actually some of my first exposure to his work as well. So I'm kind of the Sam and Twitch fan 
fan as opposed to the Al Simmons fan. One of the best things that McFarland does in this issue is show incredible strength and incredible weakness from the same character within moments. There's a woman who is about to be attacked in an alley. Spawn shows up, scares away all the bad guys, take her off. The woman is frightened by Spawn. I mean, look at him. He shows up in back alley. You think you just went from one bad thing to a worse thing. Out of nowhere, his memories come flooding back. He remembers a wife. He remembers his life beforehand. And when he comes to, he's in this woman's arms, broken and destroyed. And she, this woman who's just attacked, is comforting her savior here. This isn't seen in comics of 1992. By any means, you know you're in for something wild, something crazy, something that you can't easily put into a category. It's about relationships. It's about religion. It's horror. It's superheroes. It is everything. And that's why it lasted so long, too. Can you talk a little bit about the art within the book? Like, so, um, Todd's insane. <laughs> now, 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 I mean, so here's the thing that I've always noticed a lot of times that, you know, when you have writer artists, something has to give one way or the other. And from an- anything I've ever read about Todd McFarlane or, or look through or just imagery that I've seen, I've always felt that, you know, obviously his art is paramount, but how in this particular book where he's, you know, this is the maiden voyage of this brand new character. How is the art in comparison or, or in connection with the dialogue and the actual story? How how well do they coalesce? This is transition phase. He is overly wordy. It's almost as in because he's an artist first, a writer second at this point that he overwrites to compensate for it. There's a lot of pages that probably could have flowed better and made just as much sense, if not even been more powerful with half the amount of words. Yeah, for me, that is definitely the case whenever he has the talking heads, like the newscasters for all the different shows. I mean, in that case, also, he's totally ripping off Frank Miller and the Dark Knight Returns, which just used that over and over and over again. And those are, I guess, supposed to be giving us backstory, you know, but to me, it just feels extraneous. It just feels like I'm filling an extra page with way too many words and not that interesting a visual. He does amazing panel tricks, and he did it a lot in Spider-Man. Unfortunately, he takes the same tricks over here, so Spawn is bordered by spider webs, which makes no sense for Spawn. Makes tons of sense for Spider-Man, and he did a lot in that comic, and it looked cool. It makes no sense here. So it's he's still playing around and figuring out how to take years between amazing Spider-Man and self-titled Spider-Man of experience and move it over to this new character and what designs and signatures that he can use for this character. The chains and capes flat out come from McFarlane's idea is I want to give the reader something cool to look at. And these chains and capes look cool. He did a few Batman comics where this cape idea starts and they're beautiful to see. On the VHS, the How to Draw with Todd McFarlane thing that I mentioned earlier, he shows how he draws the cape. He'll draw spawn, and then he'll just draw lines coming out in every direction. And then he'll see the lines, he'll be like, okay, how can I connect these lines to pretend it's a cape and it makes some sort of sense? And he'll do it, and he'll, he'll fold it back and add shadow and, you know, add another line here, another design there. He just goes nuts. And his idea was, if I'm going to spend 10 to 12 hours looking at the same page, I need to entertain myself. And if I'm entertaining myself, I'm entertaining the readers, too. And it is. Every page of art is crazy. He's playing around with shadows and inks and and, and uh, wants to camera angles, which is weird to say for comic, but I don't know a better way to put it. I mean, he does draw like it's cinematic in a sense through the eye 
eye of a lens, so to speak. Like if this was going to be made into a television show or a movie or eventually they become a cartoon show, you know, or, or cartoon movies and whatnot. He does draw in that kind of lens or, or perspective. And, you know, you did mention like the, the Batman, the most iconic Batman cover of McFarlane for me is the Batman 223, that beautiful cover where his cape is kind of all over the place and McFarlane pays homage to himself almost in a, in a Spawn cover doing the same thing, which is which was pretty cool. And I, I always really liked that. The webbing thing that you, that you mentioned was almost like a nod to Spider-Man. It's like almost like his farewell to Spider-Man saying, hey, look, we're, we're going to have these webs here, but we're never going to see They're going to go away and it's going to be something new entirely. And I think that's probably what he maybe he was trying to say, but just never came out and said it, you know? Well, and, and probably, and he, he truly hated Marvel at this point. He really, really did. And he got mad at Liefeld and Jim Lee, anyone from Image that went and did work for Marvel again. It really, really upset him and bothered him. And I don't believe Todd's done anything with Marvel since, even for Image, still to this day. Like you're saying, though, with him maybe using the spider webs as an homage to where he's been or, or using the Batman thing, he also has a tremendous love and respect for the history of comics. When Image started, they wanted to have each Image comic say Jack Kirby Presents. Much like Marvel says Stan Lee presents, they wanted every single image comic to say Jack Kirby presents because Kirby got screwed over royally by having no right to his art, to his creations. He was not given the same respect and notoriety as Stan Lee was. None of it. And the image guys wanted to make amends for all that in a way with their own company. So they actually got permission from Jack Kirby to do so. It just never, for whatever reason, it never ended up happening. Wow, that is fascinating. I had never heard that little bit of trivia before. Like, I knew they had a connection to Kirby, and I know they even had a book planned that Jack Kirby was going to publish through Extreme Studios. But that's so interesting that they were going to just make all of their books just as a way of paying uh, Jack back for all his inspiration and get what he deserved. That's great. When you think about it, it's like every kid who ever reads comics dream is like, first, I'm going to become a comic book artist at the biggest companies in the world. Then I'm going to say, you know what? I'm going to go off and do my own thing and make a book on my own company that, okay, it's 2020 and they just released the 300th issue of it. And tons and tons of famous writers and artists have came out and did covers, did segments, did versions for this 300th book because it had so much impact on so many other you know writers and artists of today because they're like hey this guy and and you know image comics had the ability to go out there and say we're going to do our own thing and writers and artists should have the right to make their own stuff that they own they respect what he was able to set a precedent for to create this ability for writers and artists to tell their own stories and own those stories Right. Well, and it's interesting you say that, Michael, as well, just because I know that when this issue is solicited, it says the first issue of this ongoing series also includes a full-color centerfold by Todd McFarlane and bonus pinups by George Perez and Dale Keown. So he already also kind of had the support of some, you know, one legendary name at that point in George Perez and then one up-and-comer in Dale Keown. So I feel like it is something where Todd always inspired that type of uh, allegiance and that respect just in the way that he did business. And so, yeah, Everything you guys have been saying just makes so much sense. And the fact that this character has been able to endure this long, even if at his core, 
And not to say that Spawn is derivative in any way, but if you look at the parts and pieces, you basically take Spider-Man's black costume, Batman's cape, and Ghost Rider's story, and you pretty much just put those in a blender and you get Spawn. Yeah. So even even in this issue, right, like in the McFarlane interview, they literally put his black costume Spider-Man drawing next to a drawing of Spawn, like on opposite pages. And so it's, it's kind of funny how they drew that parallel at the time as well. Uh, Spawn is one of those characters that means so much more to comics outside of just his stories, but yeah, what he means to the business and kind of the, the flag that was planted for independent creators. Now, did you say that McFarlane had a centerfold of himself in the comic? (laughs) (laughs) In Spawn Bikini Briefs? Yes. (laughs) Unfortunately, this is before Angela had entered the book, or else I'm sure he would have put an Angela centerfold in there. Well, guys, this was really, really... I I learned a lot. I I, I never thought I would meet somebody that knew as much or more than Adam about a particular subject, but I I was blown away this evening. I was like, let me tell you, holy cow, I was not prepared for the amount of knowledge that was poured into my brain at 1 o'clock in the morning here in New York, but hey, it's very, very cool. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us tonight. It was was wonderful and really, really educational, and I think a lot of people really will connect with a lot of things you said. Anytime. I, I love doing these. I think Retro Network Anniversary is coming up relatively soon here, we'll say. Next month, I believe, in June. But the amount of people that it introduced me to and you know expanded the expand my knowledge has been a blessing really oh absolutely yeah it's a great network to be a part of and speaking of which that does it for this episode of wizards and obviously we do thank kevin for joining us so be sure to listen to the house show here on the retro network even if you are not deep into wrestling you will get a lot of entertainment value out of that show i promise you hey and they'll teach you a thing or two but we'd hope also that you've been enjoying our wizards half episodes as a follow-up to these main shows get a little solo time and a couple laughs with michael on the mic uh he does know the human torch's catchphrase guys all right i realized it as i was editing i was like oh no <laughs> I, I was sitting there and I'm, I'm editing this and i'm hearing my own voice and i'm like oh my goodness i'm gonna get destroyed on twitter but i'm like you know what i'm not gonna cheat i'm not gonna go back and say let me edit it and and tweak it in them like you know what let the internet come at me i'm i'm a grown man i can take it so i was ready and not to end the show on a down note here but i think there is something important that needs to be said friend of the show chris sheehan at ace comics on twitter of the chris and reggie's cosmic treadmill podcast and chris is on infinite earth's blog unfortunately this week uh he got news that his collaborator and podcasting partner reggie uh, passed away he had been dealing with some health issues for this last year that prevented him from participating in their show and uh it was just one of those things that was kind of sudden and shocking and i know it's been hard on chris but they contributed so much to the online comic book community and comic book podcasting world out there and their show was one of the best and I'm sure it will continue in a different form. Chris is a very creative guy, but we just want you to know, Chris, that we're thinking of you, and uh, we send our condolences to Reggie's family as well, and I'm sure that we can expect some great things that will pay tribute to Reggie in the future. 
But next Wizards Wednesday, we actually have something very special for you. We teased it last episode, but we have our Generation X TV movie review. Yes, a bonus episode. Steven Sapelis is coming back. We're going to expand your mind in a way that you are not expecting. Uh, Michael also went through a learning curve on uh, on that particular record as well. And just so you know, if you want to prep yourself before this podcast for Generation x go to youtube search generation x watch the movie it's an hour and 20 something minutes so that you can fully engross yourself in what you're going to learn and it'll be worth your journey with us to watch it beforehand very entertaining in its own right on whatever level you want to take it but that about does it so until next time keep your books bagged and boring This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.